Bible reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town that is built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, this morning, we're here, the kids are dressed, and the best thing about kids getting older is Maya's hair. I don't have to do her hair anymore. Every time a vet goes away, the first thing she would say is, I'm going away, and Maya would go, oh, who's going to do my hair? Because the story goes that one day, I had to do her hair, and they do it on one side, and only did one side, and tried to pull it all across, and it was pretty bad. Anyway. They're here, they're clean, they're fed, we're good. But the one thing that I find happens every time uh, Yvette goes away is the one job that I never see, and I'm aware of it, so this is my afternoon, um, is the washing. <laughs> the kids are cleaned, the house is okay, the, the pets are good, the, the bags, the, wa- the dishwasher, the, dish- the dishes, everything's good except for the washing. I don't know if you've ever found you- yourself in a place where you've had to put on an old shirt or something that you haven't worn for a while, maybe out of necessity because somebody's gone away and you don't have enough clothes left or, or maybe for whatever other reason, but you reach into that pocket of the jacket. I did have a jacket I was going to wear for a prop, but also I've discovered that um, they seem to shrink in the middle area <laughs> if you don't use them very often as well. So I wasn't going to wear the prop today. Um, but you, you put on that suit jacket or those pants and you reach into the pocket and all of a sudden you, you find something and you go, oh... You know that feeling when you, you, you find some money or you find that key that has been missing or that, that card or something and then you start thinking, where was that from? Like where? Oh, was that, when was the last time I wore these? And, and, and if you were to identify the space of your body where that emotion sort of comes from, it sort of comes from up here. It's like a weight off the shoulders. It's like it's air, it's breath. It's like, oh. It's like you've found something and it's exciting and it's good and it's positive and, 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 and even if you can't remember why it was there, you just go, oh, well, woo it's good. In, in total contrast, have you ever been in that experience where you've been at a restaurant maybe, you've gone out or somebody's given you a lift somewhere or you're, you're about to arrive at a destination and you reach into your pockets and you go, oh, hang on, um, Where's my keys? Um, where's my phone? I've just ordered dessert and I don't have my wallet. Oh. And, and almost you don't care because you usually remember exactly where they are. But, but that emotion that sits down here, where you just, maybe in your lump in your throat, but you just feel like almost sick. Oh. I can't call someone. I don't have my phone. I, I, I've got a car but no keys. I've... 
I've got no money to pay for something that I've committed to. Today's message is about how people are lost, but they need to be found. They're lost. There's there's something that they're longing for deep down in their stomach that that they can't find, but they need to be found. And as a church, as believers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be salt and light. We are called to be the the God flavors in the world, the the flavors of of what it is to, to have God as a part of our lives in our daily interactions with others, the salt. And because we have the good news, we have the hope for future, because we have Christ in us, we're to shine that light into the darkness. But as the passage said, if the salt loses its saltiness, what use is that mineral? What use is that? It's lost its focus, it's lost its purpose. And if you have a light and, and it's there to shine out, but you cover it up, then what point is the light in the first place? As a church, we believe one of the core values of who we are is that there is no bounds to our willingness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, to be salt and light for the sake of the kingdom. And today's message speaks in and around how we perceive church and what God says through Jesus to the church in in the Bible times and why they existed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at your word and look at the parables that Jesus explained to the church of the day about what their purpose was and what God's heart was for his people, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to us where we need it this morning. Lord, challenge us to the point where we have to wrestle with your spirit and through scripture so that we can become the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm tempted at the end of this service to do something a bit weird. I may not do it, but that's the warning. Okay. We are spending most of this morning in the book of Luke and in chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles or your phone, you want to look along with us in that. The the key verses will be up on the screen. And what Jesus does is... Is the church of the day of the day is talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and quite often when we look back, we see those individuals as the bad guys. They're the ones that crucified Jesus, but actually, at that point in time in history, they were actually the church. They were the current church. They were the ones that were keeping the law under the oppression of a different ruler. They were the ones that were trying to keep God's people aligned with Scripture. Now, what had happened is over time, they'd actually lost their way a little bit and were starting to to get caught up in the rules and regulations and religion rather than the heart. And so when Jesus comes in and challenges their heart, that's where we see the the issue. But Jesus actually had a lot of respect, a lot of respect. In Luke 2, he's learning from the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as a a young teenager. We see that Jesus learnt from the Pharisees, but when he realised that they were doing the wrong thing, that's where he he sort of went up and said, hey, you guys got to, do you realise what this actually means? And challenged them. Sometimes challenge is hard. And, but he uses this challenge to the church of the day in three different ways. And in the first story, he tells a story about a shepherd and a sheep. The second story talks about a coin. And the third story talks about a family. 
And what I love about Scripture is Jesus says, he hits the same punchline for each story. He says, it doesn't matter if you, if you care about nature and the world, if you care about animals, and if that's the thing that you resonate with, I want to tell you a story that hits that. If you care about work and money and you're trying to get these riches and, and you see money as value, I want to tell you a story that, that uses that as the analogy. If you care about family and he spends the most time talking about this family, if you understand the family dynamic what it is to love your children, what it is to love a father, to, to love your parents. If it is to sit in that, I want to share a story with the same outcome. It hits the same story three different ways, just so that we can't miss the point. The first story in, in the very start of Luke, from Luke 1 through to 7, Luke 15, 1 to 7, he talks about a sheep. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually had anything to do with sheep. I know we've got a number of farmers within our church, but... The first thing that I realised when I started to, to work with sheep, being a country boy, living in a country, country environment, is that, that sheep are really, really dumb. <laughs> like, ridiculously silly animals. You'll see them running across a paddock and for some reason the first sheep will leap over an invisible something. And every other sheep will leap over this same invisible something. For no reason at all. They're not smart animals. And when you first start working with sheep, you have no empathy for them. I remember crutching. I won't explain crutching in church, but it's a, it's a, I remember working with sheep for the very first time thinking, these animals are, are so silly. Even when you're trying to help them, they're, they're dumb. And then the more I started to work with sheep, the more I started to see the shepherds the farmers. And this is in Australia. And you'll see a farmer walk up to a, to a sheep or a lamb that, that a wild animal has gotten to the night before. And you see that the, the sadness within the farmer because of the way that the animal died and the righteousness of wanting to, to get rid of the fox or the animal that caused the destruction. And you actually see that the, the farmer cares for the sheep. The, the shepherd cares for the sheep to the point where, where you can see that, that there's more value than just this silly animal. You, you can put a monetary worth because sheep are good for, for wool, they're good for lambs, and at the end of their life they're good for meat. But, but it's more than that. They're an animal. There's a bigger connection. And so Jesus shares this story about this shepherd that had a, had a hundred sheep. And there's a hundred in this flock. It's a good number. It's a solid number. It's a big number. And one of the sheep walk off. He's lost and not found. He's lost. And the shepherd feels the pain of the lost sheep. And so he, he cares for his, his flock and he puts the sheep in, a, in a, a paddock where they're safe. And then goes off searching for the lost sheep. And what I love about the way that Jesus uses in Scripture, he shares the story actually as, a, as an illustration of what he was going to do later in life. And when he finds this lost sheep, he finds it and he picks up the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders, carrying the weight of that lost animal, bearing the burden of that, and carries the sheep back to the flock, back to the body of Christ, back to community, back to relationship. 
as he, as he previews what he was going to do when he died on the cross and bearing the weight of our sins upon his shoulders. And then we see in Scripture that, that when he gets this sheep home, he then calls all of his friends and neighbours and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance is the action that, that follows when you're sorry. When you've done something wrong, there's, a, there's an action that follows that, and that's called repentance. I'll just use a random story that doesn't have any truth at all, but maybe someone was learning that when you do the washing, when your wife's away, you don't mix the light and dark things together. Just as a random analogy, just, let's just put that out there. And when that said person did put some dark things in with the white things and the white things became out not quite as white as they were, they were very sorry <laughs> that they did the wrong thing. Now, I can say, you can say sorry that I put all the dark socks in with the white shirts and made grey shirts and, and those things, but, but unless you learn and you repent from that thing that you've done wrong, and it was an accident, it wasn't on purpose, but it was still wrong. There's still a consequence. And sometimes we do. We make mistakes all, all the time. The idea of repentance is going, I want to better myself so I don't do that again. It's not doing the same thing again. It's the sorriness in action. And this passage says that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who, who says that they're sorry for what they've done between their relationship with God, sorry for wandering off. From the flock, I'm sorry for wandering off from what God has called me to do. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than 99 that don't need to repent because we know where we're going. We have certainty of heaven. We know that Jesus died for us. We've accepted him into our life, so we know where we're destined for. But Scripture says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one that repents than 99 that don't need to repent. Jesus then tells the next parable. He says, there's a woman that's got 10 silver coins. And silver coins don't really hold that much weight for us. I think the largest silver-colored coin is a 50-cent coin. But it's actually not about the value of the money. It's about the illustration and this idea of lost. And she, she turns the whole house. She loses one coin out of the 10. And so she turns the entire house upside down upside down, searching cupboards and things all over the place and, and turning everywhere. And she, she finally finds this coin. And she calls her neighbours over in verse 9, Rejoice with me, I found my coin, verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner. The angels of God, heaven rejoices the angels are singing praises. If you want to know what makes the angels worship, it's when somebody comes back into relationship with their loving Father, their Father in heaven. Somebody repents. It says sorry, but follows it up with the action. Understands. You see, the closer you get to God, the more you see your flaws in yourself. The closer you get to someone who is perfect, you realize, well, all of a sudden, I'm really not perfect. And the idea of discipleship is being on that journey and each time saying, I'm sorry, I need to do better. I'm sorry, I need to do better. I'm sorry, and doing the action. 
Then we get to the largest story, the largest parable that Jesus spends the most time on. And he says there's a father and he's got two sons, an older and a younger. In the culture, the older brother would inherit everything. That's what happened. The older brother would inherit the the entirety of the estate. The older brother would inherit uh, the the authority. That would be the heir. That would inherit the responsibility for caring for the family. And the younger brother wouldn't get too much. Might get something if, if they were generous, but it wouldn't get too much. But the younger brother goes to the father and says, Do you know what? I wish you were dead. I wish I could have what I would get when you died, but I want it now. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of the farm. I don't want to be a part of anything that you're doing. I wish you were dead and I could have all the money that I was going to get when you die. I want it right now. Can you imagine how that would feel? The father then sells a portion of the farm and gets the money and gives it to the younger son. The scriptures then say that the younger son squandered his wealth on righteous living. He goes off into a, a distant country and, and just lives up. He's substance abuse, he's, he's abusing his body, he's, a, he's, he's sleeping around with people that he, he's not really invested into spiritually or emotionally. He's just going for the physical things. He's, he's, he's not paying any attention to anything. He's just living life carefree. And the scripture says, then along came a famine and there wasn't a toilet roll to be found. I just had to get it in there somewhere in the message. And all of a sudden, there's this day where the younger son reaches into his pockets and goes, where's where's my money? It's at the back. It's at the back. It's at the back. That's right. It is in the back. Well done. You remember where I put it. <laughs> and, and you picture that, that younger son and the re- the, what he would have had to do. Can you picture the... He's been living it up. He's been independent. He, he's, he's rejected his heritage, his family. He's, he's rejected those things and he's, he's living this life now and all of a sudden he's got nothing. And all of a sudden all his pride and his ego... And his hunger start to compete. And he's going, well, my pride and ego are stronger than my hunger. I'm okay. I'm okay. I can do this. And then after a few days of not having anything, the hunger just grows to the point where his hunger outweighs his pride and his ego to the point where he goes, I've got to get a job. I, I got it. I'm, I'm starving. I'm going to die. So he gets a job. And Scripture says he gets a job feeding pigs. And, and as he's, he's feeding pigs, the, the idea of a, a Jewish person being amongst unclean animals, and we talk, we've been talking a lot about the, the early books of the Bible, the books of the law, the Torah, they, they talk about these animals that are clean that you can have and you can eat and animals that are unclean, and pigs were unclean. So for a Jewish boy to be, to be with unclean animals is a double negative. It's bad, bad. Don't have anything to do with them, let alone work with them. And Scripture said he got to this point where he's, he's feeding the pods that grain was in. So when you, you take your wheat and your, your grain, you take out the, the good bit and you turn it into bread and you're left with this, this pod, this husk 
and he's feeding these husks to the pigs. And as he's feeding these pigs, his stomach's just rumbling so hard that he's, the scripture said he longed to eat what he was feeding the pigs. And all of a sudden, he came to his senses. And, and he, he realized just how, how desperate he was and how lost he was. And he thought, my, my father's servants don't have to go through this. My father's servants don't have anything to have to, to feed pigs and have to, to starve for food. They're better than this. What am I doing? I've rejected everything that's over there and there's no, no way I can return to what I was. But I'm going to go back. I'm going to beg my dad for a job. And so he rehearsed this, this, this sentence in his head and get, to go back to his father and said, Father, I've sinned against God and I'm against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but could I have a job as one of your servants? And as he, he got, came to his senses, he started heading back to his father and he, in his head it's like, I've sinned against God, against you, I'm no, wor- I'm not longer worthy. He was repenting. He was sorry for what he'd done. He acknowledged that he had broken the relationship with the father and he was not owed or, or due or there was nothing that he could do to restore that, but he was still going to go back and beg forgiveness so that he could come in as a servant. He repented. The scripture says, though, he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. While he was a long way off, the father saw him. Wearing the, the robes of the day meant that running was not a, an easy task to extend your legs in a, in a run. I don't know if you can run on the spot. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and so the father, you know, breaking tradition, breaking the, the ideas that were of the time, grabbed his, his robe and, and lifted it up, not caring about what other people thought, not caring about what was culturally acceptable, only caring about the love for his lost son, lifted up his robe and ran to his son. His son has been feeding pigs. His son has been ritually unclean by being with, with the, the, the double negative, the, the, the pigs, the, the, the stench, the, the dirt, the, the grime, the, the filth that his son would have been wearing. He doesn't care. He hikes up his robe, runs to his son, gives him a hug and kisses him on his dirty, smelly face. And goes, get the robe that shows that the inheritance, the robe for the older son, get, get the good robe and put it on him. Put rings on his fingers. Go and kill the fattened calf, the calf that we've been, we've been waiting for, for a special event, that the calf that we, we look after, the calf that, that may be due for a sacrifice down the track. But get that calf and, and kill it and we're holding a party. We're celebrating. My son, who is dead but is alive, who was lost and is now found. And this huge celebration breaks out. Because this son that was lost and is found, was dead but is now alive, is back. How great the Father's love for us, beyond all measure. There's another brother in the story. 
and the other brothers, seeing all this take place and seeing this party and this celebration and the young, youngest son, and it's going, oh, that's, I see that happening. But he, he said that he didn't want anything to do with us. He's been living a different life. He, he took, like, all his inheritance. He's gone and lived with prostitutes, and he's been drinking and sleeping around and doing all this crazy stuff, and, and, and nothing's happened for me. He's sitting outside there, to do with this party. What about me? I don't, it's not fair. And the father goes out to him. The father goes, oh, come and join us. Come and join us in the party. Come and join us with the celebration. And, and, and the oldest son is like, I've been... I've served you all this time. I've never done anything wrong. I've, I've obeyed all the rules. I've done all the right things. You haven't even given us like a young goat or anything to, to, to have a party with my friends. It's not fair. What, what about me? What, I've been doing the right things. What, what, why would you go so over the top for this son? Like he doesn't deserve it. Why have you done this? And the father replied, we had to do it. We had to do it. Like, there's, there's no choice. You're always with me. We're family. We do this together. And everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because your brother of yours was dead and is now alive, was lost and is now found. As a church, we need to realize that, that while we love what we do, we love coming together to worship, we love singing, we love the format, it doesn't matter if you're on a cruise ship or if you're here on a Sunday morning, it doesn't matter. You know, we're here to worship God. Church doesn't change all that much from space to space because we're worshiping the same God. But we know where we're going. We have a certainty that we're going to spend forever with our Lord and Saviour. And Jesus is saying, but the Father, the Father longs for the lost, the one. The, the one person that's walked away, the one person that needs to come back into relationship, the one person that was lost and needs to be found. It's so important that we understand that there's more celebration in heaven over the one. It's why we exist. It's why God sent his son so that the lost could be found. And we've experienced that. Most of us in this room have experienced that. But the church exists to be a place where we can raise each other up so that we can go and reach the ones. In 1940, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler decided that he wanted to do things a certain way and that everyone should conform to that way of living. In that time, he thought that people that looked different were from a different nation or background, weren't pure, therefore shouldn't exist. And some horrendous atrocities took place. One of the horrendous things that took place was towards the Jewish people, where death camps were set up and Jews were executed in extremely inhumane and terrible ways. 
during this time of, of slaughter, during the Holocaust. There is a number of stories that have arisen of people who have who fought against that in different ways. In 1944, Oskar Schindler was one of those individuals. And he sought to use his influence as a businessman and his wealth to save as many Jews as possible. He bought factories and employed Jews under the the umbrella of its dangerous work. Let's employ employ the Jews. He started an arms manufacturing plant where he would hire children, Jewish children, because their hands were small enough to reach inside the the shells that were being recycled from the war effort. In 1993, a representation of Oscar Schindler's life was, was created in the movie called Schindler's List. While it's a representation, it helps capture some of the the horror of the war, but also the heroic effort of one individual. And towards the end of this movie, we see what is the representation of... um, In in the movie, it says 1,100, but the records show that there were more. 1,100 individuals who were saved because of what Oscar Schindler had done. When the war end ended, there's a, there's a portrayal that we're going to watch a movie clip in just a moment of what it looked like as all of these Jews that, whose lives had been saved by this one man were saying thank you and they present him with a ring, a ring to, to show that gratitude and we can see just the heart of one person that, that longed to save others that saw the value in human life, that saw others the way that God saw them. Let's look to the screen. There are 1,100 people who are alive because of you, Okatan. If I'd made more money. (laughs) I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I just... Generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. 
this car. Oh God, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person stand. For this. I could have got one more person. Incredibly moving clip. I wonder when we get towards the end of our lives if we will be like that. Will we have used every opportunity that we have? to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. Our friends and our family, sometimes the level of uncomfort needs to lean in God's favour because there'll be a cost. Like the the prodigal son, the the level of humility and, and having to swallow his ego and his hunger were in battle to the point where he got a job feeding pigs. For some of us, it's our fear of people that stop us from sharing the good news. There's there's things that stop us. What if they don't like us? What if it ruins a friendship? But what if it doesn't? What if we share what God has done in our lives and then God shows up and transforms a life for all eternity? About the one. I shared with our youth at our youth camp that in high school I was one of the only Christians, definitely the only overtly Christian within the school, little country high school. And I remember wrestling through, I always went to church, I always went to the small youth group that we had and and during year 12 I started running that youth group and I, I finally got the courage to invite my year 12 peers to a youth rally. I think Maddie was playing drums. And much to my surprise, they all turned up. And we, we played really overly loud music because we were rebels and young and silly. And we had a speaker come and gave a gospel message. I remember two things out of that, that time so many years ago. One was, I should have done more for my peers, and that was highlighted just a month ago when a messenger chat group started from all my school friends. I thought, oh, it's not a reunion, what's this one about? And one of my friends from high school had been diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer, so aggressive that within two weeks he had passed away. And as I think back, I think, could I have done more? He heard the gospel once. Could I have done more? 
I don't want us to be playing comfortable with the 99 when there's ones that may be spending an eternity without God. And we can talk about how do we lead someone to Christ. We can talk about how did you come into faith. We, we can talk about those things, but that is useless information if we don't have the heart for the lost, if we don't have that feeling deep down, that drive that will prompt us into a place where we would have a conversation with somebody to lead them close to who God wants them to be. Like I said, we may do something awkward, but if it can get more awkward than that sort of challenge. The, the challenge this morning is, is around our, our comfort. What cost would you pay for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there's a cost. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to have those conversations. Sometimes it's, it's intentional to have a conversation with a non-Christian. The second question is, who is your lost one? What I'm going to get us to do in a moment is I'm going to get us to clap. It's weird, I know. But what I, what I want us to do is together to both participate and hear the urgency for the gospel. Every time you clap, it represents something. For a start, I want you to clap, and every time you clap, you think of somebody who you know, who needs to know Jesus, and you clap with their thoughts, their face. And once you run out of people, because you may not be able to think quick enough, I want you to hear the other people who are clapping, and you start clapping for them. Every clap represents a salvation. It's a metaphor. It doesn't really happen, but it's a metaphor that I want us to hear and experience and participate. Every clap, I want us to hear as a church what it looks like to have a hunger for the lost, to, to, to see others and, and the passion that they clap with, that the tears in the eyes for the people, the family members that they're clapping for. It's weird. I'm naming it. It's weird. But I think it's important. I'm going to start. I've got friends that don't know who Jesus is, people at the gym that I go to, I've got family members that have walked away, I've got people on a vet side of the family. Join with me if you want to see the lost come to faith. Join with me. It doesn't have to be together, it can be whatever. You can clap fast, you can clap slow. Think of your family members, you know, the people, the neighbors across the street. You think of the people that you're going to interact with this week, the people at work, the people at school. God, we want to have a heart for you. We want to have a heart for you, God. We want to have a heart for the lost. Lord, we want to see hundreds, if not thousands of people come into faith. We don't want to get to the end of our life and, and be in that space where we just go, one more, God. What if I just have the conversation with one more? Come on, church. Do you care about the lost? We've got to clap. We've got to do this for them. Last week, we prayed a prayer that you would give us eyes, God, to see others the way that you see them. That you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. Lord, our prayer this week is that we would see people the way that you see them, that we would see the 99 
as our brothers and sisters, and we would love them and care for them and strengthen them and journey with them, that we would share life together with them as the body of Christ. But just as passionately and just as diligently, we would see the ones that don't know who you are and that our hearts would break and that we would be moved, that we would be moved by your spirit to a place where we, our comfort zone fades away and our sense of call and urgency raises up and that we would have a spirit-led conversation with them to draw them back to the Father, back to the shepherd, that the lost would be found. Lord, we pray for revival in this city so that your name would be proclaimed and so that when we get to the end of our lives and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, we wouldn't be thinking, what if I got one more? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.